Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, I'd like to invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark, which is the second Gospel uh, in the New Testament. Uh, And also just to say that uh, if you don't have a communion cup, uh, you can grab one just over there at the entrance. Uh, And uh, we're going to be taking communion just at the end of, of the message. So Mark uh, today, chapter 1, we're still in chapter 1, verses 9 through to 13, just five verses this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. It's quite a common thing in the church to hear someone say that after they got baptized, they experienced strong spiritual opposition in the following days. The mountaintop high of water baptism quickly becomes a valley of doubts and temptation. It's like the real battle has now begun. The battle of life as an obedient Christian with all of its ups and downs. Well, here in this short little section, just five verses long, the real battle begins for Jesus. First, we see that His baptism sparks nothing less than the heavens tearing open and the spirit descending and a loud voice crying out from heaven. But immediately after this amazing moment, Jesus is driven out to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And so the real battle begins. It's like as soon as heaven's door opens to Jesus, so does the door of hell. And so what drove Jesus to go out to the wilderness, to John's baptism. Because you remember from last week that there was this strange preacher who was out in the wilderness and thousands of people were going out to see him and they were confessing their sins and they were being baptized. And John preached to them saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so just imagine the scene for a moment. You're one of those people who are lining up uh, on the banks of the Jordan River. You're waiting for your turn to be washed when all of a sudden a man comes walking along by the Jordan and his very presence makes John the Baptist stop in his tracks, stop what he's doing and declare, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, it is Jesus And the text tells us it's Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And he comes to get in line with all of the sinners to be baptized along with them. And we know from Matthew's gospel that this is hard to swallow for John the Baptist because he's already said 
that he's not even worthy to untie his sandal, let alone now to baptize Jesus. And he's already said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This man doesn't need forgiveness of sins. But Jesus asked John to do it, and so it is done. Well, why does Jesus need to get baptized? Well, Matthew's gospel records it to us in all righteousness. Now, righteousness is the perfection of God. It's the measure by which every person will be judged, the perfection of God. And what this tells us is that somehow Jesus's life and ministry is going to meet all the righteous requirements of God, all the righteous requirements of the law. Well, how? How is Jesus's life and ministry going to do this? Well, we know the Sunday school answer is that he's going to die for us. And if I was to ask one of my kids, what did Jesus do for us? They would dutifully say, well, Jesus died on the cross for us. And that would be correct, but that's only half of it. You see, what we must also realize is that Jesus also lived for us. He lived for us. You know, why didn't Jesus just appear from heaven as a grown man in Jerusalem and die on the cross for our sins? It it could have been all over and done with very quickly. No, Jesus came. He was born of a woman under the law of God like every other human is, and he lived the obedient, righteous life that we could not live. He lived the life that the first Adam did not live, nor has any man or woman lived since. And that's what qualifies Jesus as our Redeemer, as the one who can go to the cross for our sins. He lived for us. He lived the perfect, righteous life for us, and therefore he fulfills all righteousness. He died for us, yes, but he also lived for us so that Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus takes the place of the sinner, even though he was without sin, so that we could take the place of being righteous, even though we are not. And this is the great exchange of our salvation. The nature of Jesus' work is, is substitutionary in nature. He takes the place of. And so we take the place of him as if we are righteous. Well, how do you visualize this? How to visualize this? Well, think again back to the banks of the Jordan. People are lining up everywhere, waiting to be baptized, and they have done all kinds of sinful things. They've lied. They've cheated. They've forsaken God in every way, and they are there to be washed. Well, then Jesus comes among them. You see this? He lines up with them. He rubs shoulders with sinners. And yet he's without sin. And he gets baptized to say that he will be treated as if he is a sinner. But he's going to live for them. He's going to live the life that they couldn't live and us. And ultimately he's going to die a death for them that they should have died and that we should have died so that we can be called righteous before God. And so Jesus' baptism, why did he get baptized? Well, he is entering into his Father's mission to the world to fulfill all righteousness. Well, the question is, what does heaven think of this? What does heaven think of this 
baptism. Well, we see immediately that heaven reacts in a wild kind of way because as Jesus emerges from the water, immediately he sees the heavens tear open. They tear open. Remember how Israel must have felt that heaven's door was shut to them for many hundreds of years, but now it's open. But it's not to the nation of Israel as a people, but it's Israel who has been reduced down to one man, the true Israel, the descendant of Israel. Heaven is smiling on him, on him. Just look up to the sky just for a moment, the clouds. You imagine for a moment the the scene of the sky splitting apart and the spirit who has long been silent now descending on Jesus like as a dove. Just as the spirit hovered over the water in Genesis 1 verse 2 in the first creation, the spirit now descends on Jesus who is going to bring a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. There's going to be a new creation in him. Well, hundreds of years earlier, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah to Israel saying, you are my servant Israel, with you I'm well pleased. But Israel was not God's faithful servant. But now as Jesus emerges from the water, a voice cries from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is God's son, his beloved son. He's going to serve God faithfully. He's going to be the true Israel. And now so far we have seen in the first 11 verses of Mark's gospel that there have been five witnesses testifying that Jesus is the one that the world has been waiting for. Mark testified it in Mark 1 verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the prophet Isaiah in verse 2 and 3, that he would send a forerunner to come and prepare the way. John the Baptist testifies, this is the one. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove and the Father says, this is the one I am well pleased with. This is the Messiah. He's the beloved Son who's come to fulfill all righteousness. And so all eyes on the banks of the river are on him, but so are the eyes of the whole world. His baptism commissions him for the task that no other person has been able to satisfy. But then immediately he leaves the crowds by the Jordan because having identified with sinners, there is something that Jesus must face on his own. Now the real battle begins. As quickly as heaven's door opens to Jesus, so opens the door of hell. Jesus is immediately in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. But I want you to notice in verse 12, that this didn't just happen to Jesus as an unfortunate thing. It says here in verse 12 that the Spirit, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. This tells us that this was a divine appointment that was set up for him in the wilderness. It was no accident or unfortunate thing. The Spirit who has just come into him and upon him compels him to go out and face it. The commissioning and the anointing is followed by a testing. And this is true of anyone who wants to follow Jesus and to serve Jesus in ministry. The commissioning and the anointing will be followed with a testing. And the 40-day period reminds us that throughout the history, history, God allowed and even appointed for his servants to be tested. Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, Even Elijah was sent to Horeb to be tested for 40 days. 
And in each case, the wilderness time was a proving ground for God's servant, a test of faithfulness to God. And I don't think we understand or appreciate the weight of this test for Jesus. It's 40 days of intense hunger in the desert. And he's under the assault of God's great adversary, Satan. And Mark puts his personal name in there. He's a personal being. And he's God's great adversary, the one who seeks to subvert the coming of God's kingdom. And we know this because Revelation 12 We see how Satan had already done this once before in Jesus' life. Revelation 12 tells us what was spiritually happening at the time of Jesus' birth. What was happening in the spiritual at the time of Jesus' birth. And in Revelation 12, it tells us there was a dragon standing before the woman who was about to give birth. So that when she gave birth to the child, the dragon might devour it. Satan tried to destroy him at birth through the actions of King Herod. And his purpose is always to subvert the king, uh, the God's king and his kingdom. But he failed. We know that Jesus came into this world and he escaped from King Herod. And now 30 years later, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Satan tries once more. If he can fail, tempt uh, Jesus to fail like he was able to do with Adam in the Garden of Eden, then God's plan of redemption would fall. Jesus would not live the life that we needed him to live. And so all the weight of Satan's power and schemes comes upon Jesus in a time of near starvation. You know how weak we can be when we're hungry, when we're starving for food. This shows us that Jesus was fully human in nature. He's not operating in his divine nature. He has emptied himself of that and is operating as a human. He's not... In the conditions of Adam and Eve, you think about the garden that they were in with its lushness and green uh, surroundings and the satisfying food that was available to them. When Satan came and tempted them and they fell, uh, they fell in in the best of conditions. But Jesus here is tempted in the wilderness with wild animals under the attack of God's great adversary. And he's tempted to turn stones into bread to take his reliance off his father and provide for himself. He's tempted to presume upon God. Throw yourself down from a great cliff, says Satan to him. He's tempted to use his power for his own advantage. And he's tempted to take a shortcut to the throne, to bow down and worship Satan and to be given rule on earth. And so Jesus here is given options by the enemy. This is how the enemy works. He gives options and John, 1 John 2 describes these things as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we feel the battle of this kind of temptation, don't we? We feel it deeply. In the holidays, I, I read the classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, by John Bunyan again. It's the allegory of the man named Christian who finds the narrow gate. And he must learn to walk the narrow path, but he faces various temptations on the way. These are, uh, those are close to, in his family who wouldn't come with him. They stayed in the city of destruction. Others who turned back on the way. A time he was distracted by pure moralism and religion. And he, was, he watched as his friend Faithful was persecuted for his faith. And then he wandered through Vanity Fair with all of life's treasures. And is tempted to go to the silver mine where riches abound. We feel these temptations daily. 
so deeply in our life. You know, it seems that as heaven's door has been opened to us, so opens the door of hell and we are tested in every way. It's the struggle of wanting to live as an obedient follower of Christ along the path. But what sets Jesus apart from every other person, every other one of us who is born under the law and tempted with sin, is that Jesus succeeds where all else have failed. Mark records here that angels were ministering to him. And this is a picture of Jesus coming through the temptation, being delivered out of the temptation and being in the presence of God in the wilderness. He's the beloved son who was tested and tried and proven to be able to fulfill all righteousness. He's the qualified redeemer of Israel and the whole world. He was commissioned, he was anointed, he was tested as God's servant, and he emerges from the wilderness victorious where no other human has been able to. He achieves on our behalf. You know, I was thinking about this I don't know if you've been watching the Winter Olympics. A few weeks ago, I stayed up late to watch a young Aussie girl uh, compete in the Winter Olympics in her event. And uh, every heat, she qualified first in the lead up and she was flawless in her runs. And in the final, she was the very last skier to run to win the gold. She was under so much pressure to execute. I could feel it for her. Everyone else had run and she had to execute this one jump in order to win. She couldn't stumble at the last challenge, but just as she did before, she did it again and she won the gold. And in her words, being interviewed after, she did it for Australia, the country and the people that she loves. And this means that she is our champion. Her gold medal is our gold medal. We don't deserve it. She's done it for us. She did it flawlessly. She did all the work. She trained, she delivered to perfection on the day. Her gold medal is ours. And this is how we should feel about Jesus. That he's our champion. His achievement is now ours. We don't deserve it because he did all of the work to perfection. But his achievement is now our achievement. Because he lived for us. He fulfilled all righteousness. And then he died for us. And as we sang this morning... Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beautiful nature of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He stands in our place as if he was a sinner so that we might stand before God as if we were righteous. Now, what does this mean for the battles that you're facing, the temptations, the trials? You know, the battle to obey Christ, which I know all of you feel deeply in the day by day, in the ups and downs of life. You know, how strong these battles are. You know, often when we think of temptations, we can think of, you know, uh, vices. We think, of, we think of sex and partying and drunkenness, and we think of other behaviours we think of things like gossip and slander and pride, all of these things that we're tempted into, these sins that we are confronted with, our flesh wants to give into, and maybe some of you have been battling with those recently, those vices in life. But you know, there are other temptations that we don't often think are temptations. The temptation to despair. You know, when circumstances in life are very, very challenging for you, and you're tempted to despair over them. You're tempted to give in to fear and let fear grip you. 
Let worry grip your heart. You're tempted to give into it. You're tempted to give up. What is our hope in these battles, these ups and downs, and seeking to follow Jesus through these things? Well, there is something amazing that Mark records when Jesus died on the cross for us. In Mark 15, he says that when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple tore in two. It tore into two. Now, the only other time that Mark uses that expression is when Jesus was baptised underwater by John and the heavens tore open. Three things happen. The heavens open, the Spirit descends, and the voice of the Father cries, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Well, when Jesus died, the curtain tears open. What this means is heaven is being opened to us. There's a barrier that was there before, but it's now been opened to us because Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness. He's lived the life we couldn't live. The Spirit, when we believe in Jesus, we believe His work is enough for us, descends upon us. The Spirit fills our life. This means that we're not alone in what we face. The Spirit is with us. And Jesus, the beloved Son, has fulfilled all righteousness and therefore the Father says of us, with you I'm well pleased. Behold what manner of love the Father that we should be called the children of God. We are his children. This means in the battles that you face, you can know daily and you need to preach this to your soul daily. I'm not alone. The same spirit that filled Jesus fills my life. And he's with me every day. He's with me in the wilderness moments. He's with me in those intense battles with temptation. The same spirit that filled Jesus is with us. So I am not alone. We know that in the temptation to sin, that living in sin is not who we are anymore. That's not my identity. I used to be a member of Satan's kingdom of darkness, but now I've been transformed into his kingdom of of light, and therefore I am no longer considered to be a sinner. This is not true of who I am. I am a beloved child of God. We need to preach this to ourselves in our moments of temptation. And we need to remind ourselves daily that this temptation, whatever it is, no longer has any power over us. It only has the power that we choose to give it. Whatever that battle is with shame, or with fear that comes over us. This has no power over us anymore because Christ has broken the power of sin and death. And so as we sang this morning, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. This must fill your heart with joy this morning, church. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Would you bow your heads as we close and pray? Father, I pray that every person, no matter what battle they are facing this morning, might know that they are not alone. You, O Lord Jesus, have opened heaven to us 
the Spirit has descended upon us and we hear the voice of our loving Father saying that with us you are well pleased because of the work of your Son who fulfilled all righteousness. Lord, I pray in the battles that we face that we would not give it power, that we would not day by day allow it to control us, but we would confront it with the power that is at work within us. So Lord, fill our hearts with faith. Fill our hearts with the strength today to trust in you, to trust in the work that has been done for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for living the life we couldn't live, dying the death we should have died. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to take out your communion cup this morning and to peel off the top. And as we take it this morning, I want us to very much take it in the spirit of what I've just preached about this morning, recognizing that these emblems represent the substitutionary nature of what Christ has done for us. As you take this bread and you take it in your mouth, you are reminded that Jesus' body was broken and it was broken in your place. It ought to have been us who died a death like this, but instead Jesus died for us and when he returns, we're going to receive a brand new body and be in, presence, in his presence for eternity. So I want to invite you this morning to take that in your mouth and to thank God for standing in your place, for taking the place. take off the cover for the cup we're going to drink this together just to consider that Jesus' death on the cross was a righteous and worthy lamb as John said behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world his blood was unstained his perfect blood is worthy to pay for our sins so we take this, recognizing that Jesus has done everything that we need to be right with the Father. Praise God. We do not need to fear. We do not need to know. We do not need to fear in the battles and temptations that we face, that we're alone, that we can't do it. We, just, we trust in our great high priest who intercedes for us and is always interceding for us and is as we speak. I find myself so weak this week. I found myself very weak. My thoughts and, and just, you know, just life. But Jesus is there in our weakness, interceding for us. He has opened the door of heaven to us so we're not alone. We thank you, Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's drink together.
We're going to stand together and we're going to close with a song of rejoicing that the battle belongs to the Lord. So let's stand together as we sing. Let's rejoice in Christ our Saviour.